glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back to our study of the Everkidzinus, and uh, we're picking up this evening with Hypothesis 31. I believe we might have left off uh, one paragraph, is that correct? Did we miss two, on 266? Anybody have it marked? I think inadvertently we only have one paragraph, and I stopped the group at that point. So why don't we pick up there? Uh, we've been looking at the ascetic life, in particular the role that monks uh, embrace and the importance of being trained or going through a trial period uh, before they do so. And uh, in order that then if once they take a greater role upon themselves, which is called the schema or schema, that uh, they don't uh, break away from it and uh, then in a sense become uh, a scandal to the world in doing so, that they embrace the title of monk, uh, the look of a monk, you know, in terms of dress, but in reality and more importantly, internally, they aren't really living it. And so with uh, this final paragraph and certainly all of 32, uh, he's really working on it very hardly, um, sorry, very, uh, directly uh, to make it clear that this is not uh, an easy decision to make nor one that one would lightly make. And, uh, and I think when we look at our life as Christians as a whole, uh, we do well to consider what it is that we've been given, but also what it is that we are committing ourselves to when we embrace the, the life of faith. And even when we receive Holy Communion, when we say amen, so be it, we are acknowledging in a very public way our uh, commitment to bear witness to the love that we receive at the Holy Altar. And so, you know, whether it's a monk taking his vow or a Christian receiving Holy Communion regularly, that we should be living a kind of life that is reflective of that love. And not just on an external level, giving the appearance of it, but on the deepest levels of our being, really manifesting the love of the kingdom. And so uh, we're picking up again on page 266, the final paragraph. Abba Dioscora said, Brethren, by the grace of God, we received the Holy Schema, and already all of this time we have been wearing it. Let us take care then that at the hour of judgment, we would be found wearing the wedding garment. For if we are wearing our heavenly garment, we shall not appear naked. But if we are found at that moment not wearing it, what are we to do, brothers? We will assuredly hear that voice saying to us, cast ye them into the outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, quoting Matthew 25. Alas, how vainly will we repent then for our negligence? How much shame and unbearable grief will we feel when we see our fathers caught up into the heavenly kingdom while we see ourselves cast by the angels of retribution into the outer darkness and eternal fire? So a very challenging paragraph and warning to the monks that what is said within the scriptures about uh, one who comes into the wedding banquet, uh, not wearing the wedding garment, uh, being cast out, but even worse is one who comes in and is wearing that wedding garment and yet does not live the life fully. 
that the, the judgment is even more harsh uh, for the one who dons it, but yet only externally. Okay. Any final questions on this hypothesis? Give, give me a little bit of a rest here, buddy. <laughs> okay. So that's the end of uh, hypothesis 31. Now 32 uh, picks it up and it's even far more challenging. And we hear again uh, from St. Synclitica, uh, one of the desert mothers. And somebody told me today online that they find her writings uh, to be the most consoling, but also the most challenging. That even though her writings only show up uh, uh, rarely, uh, within the collections of the fathers, that there's a real depth to them. And I agree. I mean, we've come across her quite a bit here in the last dozen or so hypotheses, and, uh, and they're always quite striking. And so, again, we're on page 267 from the life of St. Synclitica. The Blessed Synclitica said that we should not have a frivolous attitude toward the salvation of our souls but we should adorn them with all our deeds and above all should not neglect their depths. Did we not remove hairs from our heads when we receive the monastic tonsure? Let us make sure that at the same time, we renounce the thorns from our noetic heads, namely our souls. For our hair symbolizes worldly life. That is the honors, the glories, the acquisition of money, bright garments, relaxing baths, and the enjoyment of foods, and in general, all the vanities and pleasures of the world. We resolve to remove all these things through the cutting of our hair. So tonsure, uh, you know, even though it wasn't, you know, the removal of all of one's hair, it was symbolic of you know, often a circle on the top of the back of one's hair or just a piece of the hair being cut off. Uh, but nonetheless, it was a sign of having set aside the, the things of the world. And uh, so the removal of one's hair and uh, the vanity that often goes with personal appearance and the dawning also of a black habit, you know, is, reminds one of a kind of dying to the world and the things of the world. And so you can begin to understand why, uh, you know, the, the fathers are pretty strict then. You know, why embrace this way of life? Why set aside these things if the internal person is still going to cling to them and going to be attached to them? if it's only going to be a matter of appearance or people seeing you as, as being holy in some fashion. Let us henceforth not exhibit in our lives any of these things, lest we scandalize those who see us. For as long as these wild beasts were covered up in the courts of worldly things, they created the impression that they did not exist. But now that they have been laid bare, they are plain for all to see. For this reason, even the most insignificant sins appear conspicuous in the virgin or the monk. Just as an animal, however small it may be, when it enters a clean house becomes immediately evident to all. The same thing happens with us also. The smallest fault becomes known to everyone. 
The same thing, however, does not happen to worldly people because they are like foul caverns where not even the largest of poisonous reptiles that nest in them are, are distinguishable since they are concealed by the things that are always found in such places. So the moment that one commits oneself to a particular way of life and bears witness to the world of giving up all things for Christ, then even the smallest uh, way of turning away from that, of clinging to the things of this world, stands out in the eyes of others and becomes uh, a concrete sign of hypocrisy uh, for the world to see. Whereas if you know, those in the world are sort of embracing everything that comes down the road and open to every, everything and every spirit that comes into their life, the, this or that action is not going to be scandalous or even noticeable uh, to the, the great majority. But to, to one who, uh, in this very refined way, commits their, their life to Christ and sets aside all these things, e even the smallest is, thing is going to stand out. And, you know, what an important thing, I think, to hear in our own day and why this would be important for those who are embracing uh, the religious life or the priesthood uh, uh, or making any kind of commitment that, you know, they create a greater scandal for not only the faithful, but for those in the world, uh, that they become obstacles to faith in, in others, even for the smallest of things. And so it's Sinclotica's way, I think, uh, of emph emphasizing that we cannot treat any sin or any behavior lightly as if it is of, of no significance. That, you know, having made the commitment, all that we do, all that we say, all of our actions in the world uh, do not go unnoticed. And the evil one will do his best to uh, manifest that to the world, to bring it to the world's attention. And certainly we've seen how devastating this is to the life of the church uh, in recent times. The depth of the scandal, how many people's faith has been wounded or ruined uh, because of the things that have happened within the church. And I think in general, uh, you know, the lukewarmness of Christians in our day uh, often becomes an obstacle to others even looking or being willing to look closely at Christianity. If we're living like everybody else within the world, then uh, it's not going to seem like th this path holds out anything that is distinct or unique either in its challenge or in its blessing. You know, people aren't drawn to, to things that have no deep meaning or in reality that don't require any great sacrifice. There's something about a person who's very committed to something and the lengths that they're willing to go to pursue it that speaks to the heart of others, whatever the field it might be or uh, area of interest. It's communicating something to people that this is something of great value. Any thoughts or comments so far? Okay. The next paragraph. 
We should then always keep the houses of our souls clean and carefully inspect all around us, lest some soul-destroying insect has burrowed a hole for itself in the sanctuary of our minds. And we should always sense the place with holy incense, that is, with prayer. For just as the venomous animals are driven away by the scent of the most potent remedies, so it is natural that prayer with fasting should drive away shameful thoughts. We have made ourselves exiles, that is, we have stepped outside the conditions of worldly life. Since we have removed ourselves willingly from them, let, not, let us not any longer seek those things that belong to the world. There had, we had glory, here contempt. There we had an abundance of foods. Here we are lacking even bread. All who commit injustices in the world are thrown into jails against their will. Let us now imprison ourselves on account of our sins so that the decision which we took by our own choice may free us from future punishment. And so, they consciously make themselves exiles in, in the world. That this is a, a decision that is made uh, in order to drive out anything that would be contrary to the will of God. And so there is an acknowledgement that the life and the role and the sacrifices that they make are, are deep and uh, very demanding. Uh, but with that also comes the understanding that uh, to let go of that then is to weaken the, the witness of that life, the image that it provides the world. Because in reality, you know, it is meant to bear witness to Christ and Christ crucified. This is what Paul says, we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so by their very lives, they are meant to, to be preaching this, bearing witness to it without words. And so when their lifestyles uh, begin to slip away from that image, it becomes apparent to all. Any thoughts or comments? No thoughts or comments? Okay. So very challenging. And, you know, we are speaking here of monks and of nuns and those who have made the decision to, to leave the world. And, uh, but I think they stand before us, calling us to a fundamental Christian dignity, but also decision about our life. Who is it that we live for? What is it that we are seeking to bear witness by our way of life? And so whether we are married and living in the world and have a job in the world, we are still called to bear witness to this kind of love and, uh, and not to be turning away from it. I'm sorry, I'm a little distracted. Anytime I hear the dog grab something or chewing something, I'm sort of losing my line of thought. You're doing great. Okay, thanks. Holding on. I'll just let him destroy whatever he needs to so we can get through this group. <laughs> so. So again, I find her to be a really intriguing writer. 
in this regard. You know, she doesn't, she puts it very simply, but I think she takes us right to the heart of the matter. We are our exiles. And in this sense, it's very, very much like uh, St. John Comicus. You know, it was one of the first steps that we considered, you know, that making oneself an exile uh, within this world, that we are living for the kingdom. And our life is to bear witness to that, that we are living for Christ. From the Gerontcon, an elder was once asked, what is sufficient to make one a monk? In my opinion, answered the elder, if one aims at just one thing, namely at God alone. So in this elder's view, the path is a very simple one. Uh, not easy, but simple to live for God and to live for him alone. And so, again, that means, you know, every choice that is made, every word spoken, uh, deed performed, bears witness to that reality. And uh, I think it's a wonderful answer. And in, in the fact that it makes it so simple and clear that we have a tendency, I think, in our life to complicate things about how we are to live our life. And we find ourselves ruminating about one thing or another, whether it's about the spiritual life or about theology, and we lose sight of Christ, we lose sight of the life that he's called us to, the Beatitudes, we lose sight of the Eucharist and receiving the Eucharist and what that, that means for us. And uh, we've often talked about St. Francis having a similar little question that he asked himself daily, who am I? Who are you, God? You know, two very simple questions, uh, but two questions that are really at the heart of life and work very quickly to draw clarity. Number two, when the same elder was again asked what a monk ought to do, he replied, he should do everything that is good and refrain from everything that is bad. So again, you know, a, a very sim simple uh, approach and very simple answer, you know, to do what is good and to avoid what is evil, to avoid what is bad, that in our day-to-day -day life, it should be as simple as that. When we come up against things that uh, we are tempted to say or do, or when we're around others who are saying and doing them, we are to ask ourselves this question, is, is it something from God or that would be pleasing to him? Is it good? And that would probably bring a lot of simplicity to our life and our decisions. Number three, the same elder said that it is shameful if a monk should abandon all things and become a stranger to the world for the sake of God, and yet after all of this, set off to hell. So why, why become a stranger to the world? Why become an exile? You know, Paul hints at something similar when he says if, if we if there is no resurrection then we are the most pitiful of individuals that if we embrace this life and we make all these sacrifices and we make ourselves rubbish in the eyes of the world and if there is not a resurrection then our life has been for naught and in a similar way you know this elder is saying you know why are you doing this 
if in the depths of your heart you do not believe this to be true and that you do you do not believe that it holds out promise to you or that you are allowing yourself to become lukewarm in it and so have drifted into an external identity that has no depth to it and you know i think when we look at the priesthood today it can uh, feel very much like that or seem very much like that. And, you know, certainly I've been a priest for many years myself and know the nature of the struggles of, of living in the world. And, uh, but also talk to a lot of people in formation and young seminarians in formation too, and see what they, they come up against and the nature uh, of the struggle and how ill-prepared we are to embrace the kind of life that is set out here so simply that you know so often in seminary there is this talk about you know of giving oneself but making use of one's talents or energy and but we hear nothing of that uh, within these writings about projects or or building things but rather the, the struggle to live the interior life, to make what it is that we receive in the Eucharist, what we receive in our baptism, uh, what we receive through prayer, become the, the reality that shapes our mind and heart. That is what influences everything. It's out, out of the depths of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so it is the, the formation of our heart that we have to be most attentive to. Uh, for those who've come to the Byzantine rite, one of the Gospels we heard recently uh, was Christ saying, you know, no, that nothing that enters the body defiles it, that it just passes through your system and goes into the latrine. And it was shocking. I mean, for everyone who heard him, including his own apostles, because no Jew ever believed that. And no Jew to this day believes that. And uh, I think we might have talked a little bit about this the last time that, you know, there are stories from the Old Testament and from uh, the book of Maccabees of the mother with the seven sons, where they all go to their martyrdom, all because they refuse to abide by the king's demand that they eat swine's flesh. And so there was a whole religion and religious identity that was built up uh, around external practices. And I don't think we want to say that there was no faith, no fidelity there. There was, and a kind of setting of oneself apart for God and living a particular kind of life. But over the course of time and generations, it morphed into a kind of what we would call now a Phariseeism, you know, this kind of literalism, legalism that distorted the, the faith to such an extent that what was going on in the heart uh, did not necessarily matter, that one could be blind to that or treat others with contempt, certain others, like who is your neighbor is a great question within the Old Testament because gen a Gentile was considered a heretic and a dog and one that you would want to have absolutely no contact with. And, uh, you know, I think I remember saying that, you know, if, uh, uh, if a Gentile woman uh, was pregnant that it would be there would be remorse that another infidel uh, would be born into the world 
that there would be no joy seen in such a thing. Wow, this is a test of my uh, attention. I'm being bitten and, <laughs> okay, I'm here. <laughs> All right. So you see what they're saying here. You know, I don't think we want to get lost in what seems to be maybe the severity of it. I think what we want to take hold of is the simplicity and the clarity of it. That what's most important is what is going on within the heart. From St. Ephraim the Syrian. It is not the tonsure and the clothing that make the monk, but the longing for heavenly things and a life in accordance with the will of God. The true monk is recognized by the latter. In the same way, the worldly man is not known by his hairstyle and clothing, but by his evil manner of life and his greed for worldly and material luxuries. For it is by these that the soul is made sinful. If you have renounced the world, be attentive to your spiritual labor, that you might acquire the pearl that you were seeking. For many have renounced the world and withdrawn from it. Yet others have set aside military rank and have scorned their riches. But since in the end they were seduced by their own wills, they fell. For there is no worse sin than for one to be taken captive by his own will and to bypass what he judges to be correct. Again, you know, St. Ephraim is, you know, one, one of my favorites and uh, extraordinary in his writing. And that last sentence, I think, sort of captures things so well for us. There's no worse sin than for one to be taken captive by his own will and to bypass what he judges correct. So in a sense, to set aside one's conscience and uh, to set aside right judgment in order to pursue one's will, to pursue what one feels that uh, is going to satisfy one's appetites or desires. Any comments? <laughs> there goes another pillow. Okay, next paragraph. These people appear to have left life in the world through the main or front door. In reality, however, they have entered the world through a window and are more deeply involved in it. They are like the Israelites, I'm sorry, they are like the Israelites who after leaving the iron furnace, that is Egypt, after having been preserved from harm in the Red Sea, and after having enjoyed so many and such great gifts from God were shipwrought on terra firma, since they were led astray by their own will. Out of such a great multitude of those who were counted at the time they departed, that is 600,000, only two succeeded in reaching the promised land, that is Caleb and Joshua, the son of Nun, who did not obey the words of the Lord and piously fulfilled the will of the Most High, did not disobey, I'm sorry. Just as it is not possible for someone to buy education with money or to attain skill without toil, 
So it is impossible for one to become a perfect monk without diligence and assiduous patience. So we might exit, oh boy, hold on for one second. I'm so sorry, folks. Here I am, it's outside. If it gets stolen, I don't know what to do, but uh, uh, <clears throat> so another pillow bit the dust and there's a huge mess all over the living room. So, <laughs> all right, so where was I? So exiting a door, leaving the world, making the choice to enter the world, but then entering through a window to go back into it. So deceiving oneself on a, a very basic and fundamental level that, you know, that once having left, that it is a guarantee of fidelity to the Lord and obedience to him, that there is a labor and uh, a kind of fidelity over the course of time, diligence, assiduous practice, we are told by Ephraim, that is necessary not only to sustain the choice that we've made, but to grow in, in depth of, of commitment to the Lord. And so often we've talked about the fact that there is no static position within the spiritual life, that uh, we have to give ourselves over completely and continue to strive for the life of holiness and that even our virtues have to be perfected by grace. And so we are constantly striving to open our minds and our hearts to God and to live for him. And the moment that we uh, begin to sort of coast within our life or feel comfortable or get into a routine where we sort of fit in neatly, even within the life of the church, I think in some ways. Uh, I, don't, I don't mean that in a negative way, but I, uh, in the sense that we are putting on the mind of maybe popular opinion uh, that can form the, the minds and the hearts of Christians of a given generation. And so as Christians, we always have to be striving for this fidelity to Christ and to the gospel and not allow ourselves to be pulled upon uh, by the mentality of a particular generation and the influences that it comes under. And so this is always a great danger for us. And for those in a monastery, you know, one can enter into it with a zeal but that zeal in the monastery as a whole can become undermined. A lukewarmness can overtake it. The disciplines can begin to break down that form and shape the life. And a kind of ease and malaise uh, can come across the community as a whole. And so they're going about their life. They're being you know, fed daily. They're you know, doing a, a certain amount of work to fulfill their obedience, but not really striving for this intimacy with Christ. And so you hear, you know, of these really holy places and monasteries or, you know, someplace like Mount Athos where there were periods where, uh, you know, the monasteries might've even been full, but not, not there. what you found there was not necessarily men striving to live in accord with the wisdom of the fathers that went before them the spiritual fathers who lived a life of holiness. And so 
you know, the, the whole life can begin to break down while there is this external facade. And even while the, those in the world might hold a place up in, you know, with great esteem, uh, eventually it can collapse under its own weight or someone comes along and uh, brings about a renewal by the way that they live their life, often at great cost to them, sometimes great persecution. So, any comments? The bottom of the page. No, I'm sorry. We are second paragraph on page 269. Be on guard, my brother, like a good soldier, and do not neglect the gift that has been given to you, lest you should someday be chastised on two counts, namely that you have grieved your parents in the flesh as humans, and that you are not pleasing to God. Rather, you should struggle in such a way that those who see you may glorify God for your virtuous life. For it is written, they that fear thee will see me and be glad. And elsewhere, much peace have they that love thy law, and for them there is no stumbling block. That is, if you have renounced the world, your parents, your relatives, friends, fatherland, and riches for the sake of the Lord, what will it profit you when you enter into the monastic life in order to be saved? Yet do the opposite. You will then be, I'm sorry, and yet do the opposite. You will then be sinning against the Lord and will damage the name of monasticism. All the same, you will be praised undeservingly by people who knew you at another time and will say, so-and-so is fortunate because he hated this world and its glory and deceit and no longer cares for anything earthly since he's gone off and become a monk. But look here at yourself, passing your life not as a monk, but completely differently. So Ephraim doesn't hold back that you know, those in the world might hold on to this image that one does not deserve. Look at this man or look at this woman. They've left the world. They've committed themselves to become a monk or a nun. But in reality, in the monastery, within the heart, they are living something completely different. And so they weaken monasticism, Ephraim says. And so appearances might mean absolutely nothing within the life of the church. What is considered, you know, strong or wise or fruitful, even within the life of the church, might mean absolutely nothing if what is underneath it is corrupt or has grown lukewarm. that one can be a hard worker and maybe produce, you know, things that seem extraordinary or good or beneficial to, the, to others or to the church as a whole. But if the heart is corrupt, what value does that have in the eyes of God for that individual? And does it not even weaken, Ephraim says, monasticism as a whole? Any thoughts or comments? Right. Let us consider what shame will overtake us 
if those who now praise us go before us into the kingdom of heaven, and if those who now venerate us and say, pray for us sinners, those servants of Christ, are then at rest while we are in distress because of the mistakes we made. For we and they shall not be judged by the same standards as the Spirit of God itself says, unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. And he who knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. So knowing the will of God and knowing that the, those in the world uh, look to you as an image uh, of a life committed to Christ and not to embrace this is to, to bring shame upon oneself, but also a, a harsher or more severe judgment. But if you've been given a kind of insight, and if you've been given a specific call and the grace to respond to it and to begin to live it, and then turn away from it and turn back to the world, then uh, the, the judgment that comes upon you will be greater. Not only because of the failure to live the life yourself, but the scandal that you bring to the life of the church and the weakening of the church or monasticism as a whole. And so for all of us living in the world, you know, our responsibility is not simply for ourselves. Our fidelity to Christ uh, or our infidelity to Christ either strengthens the church or weakens it as a whole. There's a, a radical solidarity that exists. And uh, what Ephraim says here about monasticism, we could equally say about the individual Christian, that you know, if we fail to live our baptismal vows, if we've been given these, this great gift and the, the gift and the witness of the saints and the martyrs, the writings of the saints, we've been given the, the sacramental life, the Eucharist, and yet do not live it, then we weaken the church as a whole and we become a scandal to the world. Any thoughts or comments? For this reason, my beloved, let us be vigilant. I beg you, as long as we still have time, for behold, the arena of spiritual contest is open to all, and the judge of the contest says through the apostle, run that you may obtain, and every man that uh, struggleth is temperate in all things. In another place, he says, no man that uh, I'm sorry, warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of, of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully? My brother, know that he who wishes to become a monk, yet does not undergo insult, disdain, and injury, cannot become a monk. And so at the very end of this, you know, he, he puts an edge on the teaching. You know, have no illusions about the fact that if you're living the life of a monk fully, if you're living in the accord with the rule of the monastery, of the monastic life, 
if you have embraced the gospel deeply, then you're going to be treated by disdain and contempt, uh, even by other monks and other religious who perhaps have grown lukewarm or comfortable with a certain state in life and will find your fidelity to be something that is repulsive because it bears light, it shines light upon their, their lack of zeal. Uh, I was watching a little bit of the movie of the man of God of, about St. Nectarius. And it was for similar reasons. You know, he was in Egypt. He was a metropolitan. Uh, he was living this very holy life, deeply prayerful, attending to, the, uh, as we see Christ in the gospel, you know, to the poor, those who are sick, the harlots, you know, the outcasts of society, uh, preaching the gospel in its fullness. And the, a fear overcame uh, the other metropolitans, that he would be made patriarch at some point. And so they, they uh, slandered him to his spiritual father. And, uh, and so he basically lived in, in exile you know, for a very long time, not given a ministry uh, to do. Uh, and then until finally he was, you know, given the right by the government to preach and was then able to take a job teaching in what was uh, an ecclesiastical school. This was a metropolitan, you know, of, of, I think it was of Alexandria. And, uh, and so he was reduced to the state. And this is exactly what Ephraim is talking about, that you have no illusions if you're entering into this state, that simply being in the monastery is going to protect you from these things. It is a battleground in and of itself. And so if you strive to enter by the narrow way, that even those who enter into this with you can then be, become the greatest of persecutors. And we've talked about this before. You know, it's often those closest to Christ who betray him the most in the deepest fashion. And certainly that's what Nectarius experienced. Yeah. Let me just check on the boy. Okay, any thoughts or comments? Very challenging. Okay, where did, did we finish that section on Ephraim? Yes, okay. From Abba Isaiah, page 271, letter D. Alas for us, since Christ-loving people venerate and embrace our bodies, which are polluted by impurity, we indeed are whited sepulchers on the outside, which emit the stench of deadly sin. Alas for us, because being foolish and thoughtless, we do not love the deeds of the saints, but the praises shown them, which we hasten to usurp. While continually defiling our souls with unclean thoughts, we want to be considered holy and to be honored with the laudatory titles of the saints. So, you know, again, think how powerful that is. It's an image that Christ used of the Pharisees. 
stay away from them. They are like whitewashed tombs. And it was believed that if one came into contact with a dead body, uh, that one would be made ritually unclean. And so this is why the tombs were whitewashed uh, so that they would shine in the sun in order that people might avoid them, you know, coming upon them unawares and then uh, becoming impure. And so this is what Christ is saying, you know, avoid the scribes and the Pharisees and their teachings because they are like whitewashed tombs. And Abba Isaiah is saying something similar, that you, you might embrace this life, you, you might be looked upon and venerated and embraced by those in the world because of your particular state. But internally, you emit a, a stench of deadly sin, that you aren't striving in, in any way to, to, to live this life fully. Anthony writes, the thorns of the world, praise, false glory, a desire for sophistication, choke out the good seeds that sprouted. Right. You know, I think to use religion and one's religiosity to gain a kind of worldly respect or to gain the support of the world for the things that one imagines one needs and uh, this has always been a challenge for the life of the church, you know, to attend to the real needs of, of the poor, of the church itself, but not to uh, sacrifice one's own soul in the process. You know, not to become so focused on uh, pursuing those riches for a good purpose. Uh, while benefiting perhaps oneself uh, from those things and uh, and then you know omit, omit something that is a deadly sin that having one's focus upon those things can then give rise to a kind of avarice within the heart we're not impervious to the things uh, of the world and the moment that we take our focus off of Christ, it doesn't take long before we are drawn in, into a multitude of things that can diminish our commitment and our fidelity. Page 272 from Abba Mark. Know, my brother, that he who does not completely deliver himself to be crucified with humility and contempt for himself who does not debase himself so much that he is trampled upon, despised, wronged, laughed at, and jeered by, at by all, and who does not accept all this treatment with joy and patience for the Lord's sake, and who does not scorn all the desires of men, whether glory or honor or praise or pleasant foods or drinks or clothes, cannot become a true monk. Now, when tests of this kind present themselves and prizes and wreaths as well, how long will we make fools of ourselves with a feigned image of godliness, serving the Lord with deceit, being considered by men to be different from what we really are, yet appearing different before him who knows the secrets of men? For although we are regarded as holy by many, we are still wild in our behavior, having the image of true godliness without, however, having acquired its power before God. 
So uh, a fundamental deceit can be within the heart of a Christian man or woman. We can embrace all the externals of the life of faith, but be negligent when it comes to being attentive to what is going on within the heart. And I think this is what has always struck me by the Eastern Fathers, where their sense of the active life uh, is the struggle with the passions, the struggle for purity of heart. They don't make the distinction between active and contemplative as we often do in modern times. You know, active life being uh, performing acts of charity. Uh, for them, the active life and the beginning of the spiritual life uh, is within. And to search, you know, for God anywhere else is foolhardy. And uh, because eventually we are going to be guided by another spirit. And so first we seek that purity of heart that gives clarity of, of, of sight, of discernment, that allows us then to come to see and understand the things that are divine, but also to know the will of God for us and the path that he sets before us, which might be much different than what we would imagine for ourselves or think is good because it can be very hard you know if if we are going to bear witness to christ within the world then we are going to witness to the fullness of christ's life and that includes christ crucified this cruciform love and uh so often we would have the faith without that it's sort of like peter on the, the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, let us build, you know, three huts here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Let's linger here in this glory, you know, and Christ, you know, doesn't even respond to him. You know, it's over, he's there, and they make their way down on their way to Jerusalem in order to fulfill the Father's will that the glory is on the other side of the cross. What is made manifest on the Mount of Transfiguration comes in and through the sacrifice of the cross. And this is what we have to hold on to for ourselves as we are striving to live the Christian life. It's hard, it's a big temptation. I think on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, to immediately move to the position of ease, you know, or to seek these little comforts for our, ourselves uh, that seem just in our own opinion and in our own judgment. Uh, but we aren't necessarily holding in our mind uh, Christ or the gospel or, or the cross. You know, we aren't remembering God or turning to God to seek his will, that we begin to live our life, you know, moving from day to day or moment to moment, even, you know, trying simply to make our way through the day, but not necessarily making it through the day in accord with the will of God and clinging to the grace and the consolation that he alone provides us.
we seek to try to find that consolation for ourselves. Anthony writes, part of the issue, show me a sacrifice that is worthwhile and I can do it. We need to find a worthy sacrifice, which we often don't have much trouble doing when it seems to produce a fruit in this world, you know, that there seems to be something that makes it worthwhile to us, you know, to make all the sacrifices of an academic or an athlete or a musician that, you know, one will be recognized for that in some form or fashion, or be able to, you know, make a certain amount of income because one is proficient in one's field and so be seen as successful. Whereas the success for the monk is to be conformed to Christ, to do the will of the Father. And, uh, and so that means to you know, embrace the cross and to have that as part of one's life. If this is the, the, the kind of love through which we are redeemed and bears witness to the love of the kingdom, then to have that absent from our life makes one's life questionable. Are we at uh, the paragraph, however, he will surely, is that correct? Further up? I'm sorry. Yes. We rely on the righteousness. Is that it? Okay. We rely on the righteousness of the outer man, wanting to please our fellow men with ostensible acts of kindness in order to court their honors and praises, while we entirely ignore the inner life of virtue according to conscience. We are reckoned by many to be virginal and chaste, but for him who knows the secrets of men, we are polluted in soul by consenting to sexual thoughts and through them the energies of the passions as a result of this sham asceticism and also of the praises of men, we fall down and our mind is blinded. So we please our fellow men with ostensible acts of kindness. So what we find in the fathers is the refusal to reduce Christianity simply to good deeds, that certainly acts of love and giving oneself in love and the care of others is part and parcel of the gospel and the Christian life, but it does not arise out of natural virtue or something that we, again, choose to do in accord simply with our own judgment or reason. This person needs that, and so I shall do this. That it's much more fundamental uh, in the Father's vision that it's first a heart, that, again, that has to be purified and shaped by the grace of God that then can distinguish the things that come from God and not the evil one. If the devil can appear as an angel of light, then he can put before us suggestions to do things that are good that might you know, on the surface, 
accomplish something, but not be in accord with the will of the Father and eventually lead us perhaps to a place of pride. You know, maybe that good deed then will raise us in the esteem of others. And then we will fall into a kind of pride and then become lukewarm in the spiritual life, not be attentive to the passions and fall into a, a greater and great, more grave sin. And so, you know, what we are hearing in, in this hypothesis is what we hear over and over again from, from the fathers, that, you know, it is Christ that has to be the focus of the spiritual life. And we have to open ourselves up to the action of his grace and respond to his will, not our own judgment or, or reason or understanding of things. And so long as we are guided by pride, uh, self-will, self-esteem, there's always going to be that danger that our religion is really about ourselves. That it's our will, not God's will, that we are following. Any final comments about what we've read this evening? We're at 8.30. Very challenging. I think it should be part of spiritual reading for anyone who's in formation, especially for anyone who's in formation for priesthood, religious life, or something along those lines. Unvarnished truth and rooted in, in the gospel in this very powerful way. It's hard to perhaps think of oneself as a whitewashed tomb. But at some point, we have to be willing to ask ourselves that question, to look at ourselves honestly. And say, you know, is contact with me drawing anyone closer to Christ? Does it make, do I decrease and does he increase in the vision of the other? Okay, so we draw to a close here this evening. So again, sorry for all the distractions here from earlier this evening. Uh, I thought you might've been settled at this point, but obviously I don't know much about these things yet. So I'm certain I'll learn my way very quickly. So when we close, as always with the, with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks to God. Thank Thanks you all. Be to God.